0: Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation at AmericasCannabisConversation.com. And here's your host, Dan Perkins.
1: Hello and welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation Weekend Update. I'm your host, Dan Perkins. Washington, D.C. Immigrant and veteran marijuana protections along with hemp and CBD measures advance in Congress. House lawmakers approved several spending bills this week that touch on a wide range of cannabis-related policy issues, including immigration eligibility for people who use marijuana, benefits for military veterans who work in the industry, and regulations on hemp and CBD. It was a busy day for the House Appropriations Committee, where two Whose spending bills that contain cannabis provisions were marked up by the full panel and another got a vote in a subcommittee. This comes on the day after the full committee approved legislation that includes language providing protections for banks that work in the state legal marijuana business and notably excludes the prior writer that bans Washington, D.C., from using its tax dollars to allow adult-use cannabis sales. The committee also adopted a regulated report that urges federal agencies to reconsider policies that results in firing of employees who use marijuana legally in accordance with the state law. Providence, Rhode Island. Rhode Island lawmakers approved safe consumption sites for drugs as panel hears marijuana measures. Rhode Island lawmakers passed a bill on Tuesday that would establish facilities where people could test and use illegal drugs under a medical supervision. Separately, a House panel weighed a measure that would legalize marijuana for adults in the state. The first piece of legislation, which would launch a pilot program for safe consumption sites, passed the full House of Representatives on a floor vote. The chamber later signed off on an amended Senate of Companion Bill approved by the body in March. The two measures now go back to the Senate floor for consideration, according to the press release. During a panel hearing after the floor session, the House Committee on Finances also heard testimony on one of three proposals introduced this session that would legalize cannabis for adult use. Legislative leaders and the governor's office have indicated they'd like to reconcile the differences between those measures and potentially return to vote on the compromise bill later this year. Denver, Colorado. Colorado sold more than a half a billion dollars in legal marijuana in 2021 first three months. Colorado's marijuana sales ellipsed a half a billion dollar mark in the first quarter of 2021, the State Department of Revenue said this past week. In all, marijuana sales were over $560 million between January and March. More than $10.5 billion in marijuana has been sold in Colorado since it was legalized in 2014. Those sales translate into over $1.7 billion in tax revenue that goes towards public schools, infrastructure projects, and government programs. The DOR compiles its monthly marijuana sales report by adding the state's medical and recreational sales together. The total does not include marijuana accessories or any products that do not contain medical marijuana. This has been your American Cannabis Conversation Quick News Update. I'm Dan Perkins. Now let's see who's joining the conversation today. We're starting with Giada A. DeCarcy, who is the founder and executive chairman of New Frontier Data, which is one of our sponsors. And New Frontier Data is one of the authorities in the cannabis data analysis analysis marketplace. Giada is going to discuss with us the 2021 U.S. Cannabis Consumer Evolution Report. Next up is Ryan Douglas, a master grower at Tweed Incorporated, and he recently authored a book, From Seed to Success, How to Launch a Great Cannabis Cultivation Business in Record Time. From our lifestyle reporter, Rich Wolkoff, we're going to talk with Brian Applegarth, founder of the Cannabis Travel Association International, a fully registered 501c6 organization, and it serves to promote the development of stale and responsible cannabis tourism, unifying the cannabis and tourism industry. And last, here again from Dr. Tessa Corsten, PhD from the University of Houston, used in conjunction with cannabis to, she talked about a drug specific vaccine for like opioids. Now she's gonna to talk to us a little bit about fentanyl and this dangerous drug and how a vaccine may also help along with cannabis to treat people who are over addicted to fentanyl. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to the Cannabis Conversation. I'm Dan Perkins, and joining us today is a woman who I admire greatly for her um, her success and her stamina and her passions, um, Giada DeCarcy and she is the founder of New Frontier Data, which is a new sponsor for our program, and uh, we've been talking to a lot of her people over the last month or so, and now we've got a chance to listen to the boss, so Good morning and welcome to the conversation.
2: A pleasure to be here, Dan. Thank you so much.
1: It's been a while since we've talked and a lot has changed. And I'm I'm curious, there's been a lot of legislation, not only in the United States, but around the world. How, uh, how, how do you think you see uh, the emergence of a global cannabis business?
2: So indeed, uh, it, you know the cannabis industry is always moving at the at the speed of light. But there certainly have been some catalytic events from a from an international regulatory perspective in the past few months that that seem to be triggering new activity. Uh, obviously, what happened with the World Health Organization so the, uh, suggesting the declassification of cannabis, and then the UN and the EU taking action. Uh, those those things uh, certainly are, are beginning to to have a material impact on on what we're seeing as far as the numbers and the figures and also nations around the world that are awakening and embracing legalization. Um, you know, I, I like to I like to tell the story that in 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 the time that it took the United States to go from eight legal states to now, you know, almost the entire United States. Half that time, we went from half a dozen nations legalizing to now almost 80. Um, So, and and a lot of activity in terms of nation legalizing, specifically in Europe uh, in the past few months, uh, but also across the entire EMEA uh, region. Um, I, I, you know, I was in preparation for our chat. I, I really wanted to go back and look at the figures. I remember when I started. At the company in 2014, and we put out our first reports in about 2015, I mean the types of compound annual growth rates that we were looking and, and projecting were were just astronomical on the on the, on the recreational side, on the adult use side, we're looking at uh, you know almost fifty percent year over year growth on the medical side, you know close to twenty uh, more like sixteen sixteen you sixteen point six actually to be exact. And as we began to approach the 20, you know, 2018, you know, we saw almost like a, a climaxing on the on the medical side, specific specifically to the U.S. By the way, uh, going over 20 percent, and then but some leveling off on the recreational side at at 25 percent. And now, you know, after 2020, sort of what we saw saw this increase in consumption, and that in conjunction with with this regulatory framework, what we're expecting are to see some some, some renewed momentum as, as far as the, the growth uh, of the industry on a global scale.
1: So, if I just take what you said and, and, and interpret it a, a little bit, um, there are, when I spoke to, to, to Gary recently, we talked about uh, the impact of the business, the cannabis business in the United States, should the Congress and the President pass reform. And and I made a prediction, and he said he wasn't going to necessarily disagree with me. But if that <laughs> if that if that happened, I estimated that there would be ten thousand new businesses formed in the first thirty days after the president would sign the bill. Now I also know that it's going to take a long time for those things to work through the system. But uh, I think that there there is uh, less of a hope of that happening today than there was a couple of months ago with the with a narrow with with virtually a tie situation in the Senate uh Schumer has to get all 50 of the of his Democrats to vote in order to get a chance to have Camilla uh break the tie but he's got now he's got problems with three senators who are on the Democratic side who are not in favor of decriminalization so he he can't get it through if that were to happen and we don't get um changes this year do you think that uh, creates a problem for the momentum in the industry?
2: No, because the industry is truly a global industry today, and and that is and that's sort of the the big new factor. So, I was recently I actually attended my first in person conference in Frankfurt just a couple of weeks ago, uh, mm-hmm. which felt like zone, to be candid with you. Um, and it was the, the theme behind it. And actually, we released our our, our cannabis um, um, import, export and trade trends study. But the, the theme of it was sort of this globalization of cannabis and, and trying to understand what the regional dynamics are. And as I mentioned earlier, there are, you know, sorts of 100 nations around the world that are decriminalizing or legalizing. But even more so, we're beginning to see trade. Right. So so we're beginning to see imports in in Europe uh, from Latin America, specifically Colombia. Uh, we're beginning to see exchange of research. Uh, so more like intellectual trade uh, across uh, uh, Asia, Pacific, mainly Australia, Israel and the United States and Europe. Um, so those trends are sort of substantial supporting so what I call sort of the globalization of cannabis. So while in the United States, again, you know, we may slow down a little bit until we do see that federal legalization, the rest of the world is, is in fact, speeding up. Um, And I'd like to bring a little perspective in terms of why is that important. When you look at just sort of the size of the the market, I mean, today, of course, the North American market uh, is the largest. Right. But when you just look at populations, uh, and, and, and and across Europe and other areas of the world, that's a much larger consumer base. So as we see countries, specifically, for instance, in Europe, legalized consumption is expected to pick up in a massive way and possibly end up, we would end up with, with a market twice, if not more, the size of the United States and Canada. Um, when we look at the, the the market value, let's call it okay. Let's let's put in illegal and illicit and legal consumption. We're looking at ninety something billion in North America, um, right? And that's with all the legalization that's happened in Europe. We're looking already at around eighty billion as nascent as the European uh, market from a regional perspective is. So that's why momentum may slow down in the United States. But, it, but not for long. And beyond that, what we're also seeing is because of this reawakening after COVID is the beginning of influx of investment into the market. And that's just beyond, you know, just Europe or elsewhere, North America specifically. So that also is probably going to have an impact in terms of um, the continued growth uh, of, of the industry.
1: The last time you and I talked, we were talking about this very subject. And at that particular time, we we didn't have a lot of legislation in Europe uh, that made it legal but your observation was at the time and I'm curious as to whether or not you've changed that your observation was that companies that are being formed in Europe for the purposes of distributing cannabis are doing so more with an eye towards the United States than they are to Europe has that changed
2: so, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. It hasn't changed, but maybe I've refined it a little bit, especially after spending some time talking to folks in Europe and after us doing a little more research. I, I I refer to this this apparent emergence of centers of excellence around the world, whereby, you know, the industry has gone global so fast that we're seeing specialization, not just at the national level, but at the regional level. So, for instance, we know that consumption right now is centered in North America. We know that research, you know, big drive, the, the big drivers uh, of research really are right now in Australia, New Zealand, and Israel, so Asia Pacific. We know that hemp production, while, you know, we don't have as much transparency into what's going on in China, we know that China and India have the big numbers there. And then we have Europe. And in in, uh, in, in Europe, you know, just historically speaking, extraction processing as it pertains to consumer packaged good and health and beauty, but also in food and beverage, their expertise is really already there. So when I mentioned that European companies that are looking to sort of, you know, really focus in distribution would look at North America, yes, today, absolutely, because it remains the epicenter of consumption. However, because of how large the European market is now expected to be, while not immediately, that may shift in three to five years
1: so you mentioned a moment ago that Europe was about eighty billion. Is that illicit and
2: and illegal it market? is and if you yes, and if you look at the global number, we're talking almost half a trillion in consumption, so we really have to think you know it's all relative. The global market itself is massive um when you add them all up
1: Colorado, which crossed uh, uh, a half a billion dollars in sales this so far this year uh huge numbers and illinois and and on and on the states are are just blowing past projections would revenue from cannabis on a global basis help the 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 treasury and coffers of many nations who have spent beyond their means just to try and save people's lives
2: and that's And a. I would say yes, <laughs> absolutely, which is one of the motivating factors behind many nations legalizing. They find themselves sort of trying to build back their economy, having gotten a huge hit during the COVID, you know, year and a half, uh, and they're looking for quick ways to sort of generate additional revenue for the government. So yes, absolutely.
1: So uh, when I was, uh, it was just on with John last week, and he was talking about, one of the retail trends, and that is that, that the flower has moved from the front of the store to the back of the store. Are you, are you seeing that that shift in Europe also in other markets, that the flower is becoming less interested to, by consumers and they want to buy packaged products?
2: So Europe, well, first of all, one of the big differences between Europe and North America is Europe, and candidly, the rest of the world outside of North America is primarily a medical market uh really with medicinal application as well <laughs> so sorry about that <laughs> nothing i can do about that i understand working from home during still covid my apologies um, not a problem so the the european market being primarily medicinal you know the, the having primarily medicinal consumers just because of that smoking the flower is not something that's appealing to someone that's looking for therape- therapeutic uh value of the plant so that's right. number one. But besides that, um, again, because of the expertise that we find in Europe in terms of extraction uh, and, and, and uh, processing and just the large CPG industry in Europe, the expectation is that we're going to see much less flour consumption um, than actual extracts.
1: So that the opportunity... Um perhaps in, 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 for lack of a better description, packaged goods or prepackaged products, uh, based on what the retailers are doing, that's where the customer wants to go. And and that's a, a trend you think will continue to expand?
2: Yes. And again, as I said, especially in Europe. Now, flour consumption will continue to be live and well in North America. Um, right. while we do an increase in consumption, and again, because of this drive from the medicinal side of things globally, both in North America and Europe, we're definitely seeing that folks are eating more edibles, and they're trying trying out new things. They're basically expanding their experience of cannabis. Mm. But we do also have a large proportion of consumers in North America that are very traditional and committed to smoking their joints. So that's Mm. not completely going away. But as you okay. go outside of North America, the adoption is absolutely into packaged goods. You also have to think about the fact that the way the regulatory framework is is expanding outside of North America. Most nations are looking at the, at the they're trying to learn from whatever mistakes was done in the U.S. or in Canada to try to advance sort of how they set standards uh, around the quality, the packaging, the labeling. Uh, and that also gives added um I guess security, you would say, to the consumer, where they feel safer using a packaged good than they would use a flour.
1: Uh, I didn't want to uh, to embarrass you or put any pressure on you. I was just curious, as somebody who knows so much about this business, if you look back over the, next, the last six to twelve months, how would you answer the question? I didn't see that coming.
2: Truth of the matter is that we did expect uh, cannabis to be impervious to economic downturn we did expect it to be to fall in the category of sort of other things such as tobacco, alcohol but with actual medicinal values even better. So we expected to the cannabis consumption to go up. I I think that what we didn't see coming is the the regulatory changes that occurred so fast, especially in a place like Europe driven uh by, by sort of the UN push. Um Our expectation was more so that we would see federal legalization in the United States before we saw sort of an organization such as the UN doing what they did. So I I don't know that we necessarily saw that coming. Um, And certainly we were uh, pleasantly surprised.
1: Yes. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. You're such a, a smart person on this industry and had great vision. So thank you for joining us on America's Cannabis Conversation.
2: Thank you, Dan, for always having such great questions and for your time. Look sure. forward to talking more soon.
1: Yeah, we'll have uh, all the contact information for Giada on the website at w420radionetwork.com. If you miss any of this great interview with Giada, you can go back there and go to the archive section and not only listen to this one, but other ones that she's been on the air. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins with more information on the new Frontier Data software called Equio. Let me ask you this question. Would the success of your business be impacted if you knew the frequency of visits customers spent in competitor stores? Of course it would. The question is, where do you go to get this information? This is just one of the many pieces of information that you can get through the Equio software available at newfrontierdata.com. Remember to click on the Equio button and don't forget to ask for the special offer. I'm Dan Perkins. You're listening to America's Cannabis Conversation on W420RadioNetwork.com. Welcome back to the conversation. and joining us today is Ryan Duggos, who was a master grower of Tweed Incorporated, and he's just recently published a new book, From Seeds to Success, How to Launch a Great Cannabis Cultivation Business in Record Time. Ryan, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We haven't done a lot about gr- We've done some shows on growing.
1: Ryan, what makes you a master grower?
3: Well, it, it all comes down to experience, really. That's a, a term that's thrown around quite a bit in the cannabis industry. But really, my background and training is in traditional horticulture. So in that world, mm-hmm. uh, we call that position a, a production manager or a head grower. But uh, a, a master grower is, is simply that person inside of a cultivation business that is ultimately responsible for the cultivation program. So, uh, in my case, really, um, I have about two decades of experience in commercial plant production. So, uh, the last few years, it's certainly been cannabis, but prior to that, um, I was growing ornamental crops and edible crops in, in commercial greenhouses across the U S.
1: Wow. So what do you do now
3: besides finish uh, writing your book? <clears throat> so I'm a cultivation consultant, so I work with companies internationally that have recently been licensed and they're looking to launch production so over the last four years or so I've worked with a dozen companies uh, in Canada the u s Puerto Rico and colombia and typically, the situation is the same uh, these companies have um, connections and they're well funded and they end up getting these production licenses but none of the uh, the management really are from the agricultural world. So they need someone to show them how to launch and execute a new cannabis cultivation business.
1: And so that's where Ryan Douglas cultivation LLC comes in play.
3: Exactly. So essentially I help mm-hmm. new newly licensed companies uh, come to market quickly mm-hmm. and I help them spend less money getting there.
1: Let me ask you a question kind of on point, but maybe not. And, and if you're, not prepared to answer the question, that's fine. Uh, uh, we don't discuss questions in advance. It's a conversation, and we see where things take us. Um, of course. The United Nations last week passed a resolution, uh, number five, I guess it was called, in, in Vienna, that uh, dramatically changed the uh, illegal nature of cannabis on a global basis. And And many of the people that I've talked to says that Europe – uh, while having an illicit market, has no real medical market, and that this change will allow many of the European nations to put their toe in the water and develop a a medical practice, and it may be a long, long time before we get to recreational in Europe like we are in the United States. Do you see that, and does it create opportunities for you to expand your growing consulting business uh, in Europe?
3: Well, absolutely. So, I work anywhere in the world uh, that cannabis is legal. So, uh, most countries and, in fact, most states here in the U.S. usually um, start with a um, medical cannabis program and, uh, depending on how that goes, typically then they implement a recreational program. So, you know, if, if, if the European Union is, is looking at Um, working with cannabis first medicinally, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. I support that. And absolutely, I would be open to the opportunity to help some of these countries, uh, launch their cannabis production programs for the very first time. I have uh, plenty of experience doing that. And it's exactly, exactly my specialty, my line of work.
1: Well, um, the test may not have mentioned to you, but about 10% of our audience comes from international, from Europe, Asia, South, South Africa outstanding excellent we're, tra- we're trying to grow or trying to grow our international business because we we think and you may disagree but or you may agree the rest of the world is quite a bit behind the United States
3: true true so the only benefit there is they can really learn from the the mistakes and the successes that we've had in Canada and the US Um, In a couple other countries that have kind of stuck their nose out there and gave it a shot for the first time. But, you know, from my perspective, I think it's inevitable. I think that the momentum can't be stopped now. Uh, I think eventually the majority of the world is going to turn that way and that they're going to legalize cannabis for some use in some manner. And it's just a question of time. It's not a question of whether they'll do it or not but they do have the advantage of studying in-depth what happened in Canada, which I was part of, and then what we've done here, somewhat haphazard in the U.S. because it's state to state, but um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm confident that that the world is heading towards cannabis legalization in the very near future.
1: Because of the unique situation where we had the U.S. Congress voting on decriminalization of cannabis, and we had the United Nations through the recommendations of the World Health Organization to basically deschedule cannabis, uh, some people are thinking that that that's going to be a, a an emphasis for the United States to uh, decriminalize cannabis in in our country. And there are people that are thinking that if it's going to happen, uh, perhaps Mr. Biden and his administration are the likely likely scenario for getting it done?
3: Well, I'm uh, just as optimistic as everyone else. Realistically, um, it's such a huge move. I don't see that happening in the next four years. What I do see happening is um, a number of steps that make it easier for cannabis companies to do business, for them to um, acquire funding. And I do see more states legalizing cannabis, either for medicinal or recreational use, um, over the coming years. But federal legalization on a large scale, you know, I I want it to happen, but realistically, I don't see that happening in the next few years. But that doesn't mean that the cannabis industry can't make leaps and bounds uh, within the U.S. border in terms of who has access to cannabis and really the, the opportunity for entrepreneurs to Launch either a cultivation business or a dispensary business or any ancillary business that services the cannabis industry.
1: Eighteen months ago, they saw a rollout of a robust um, dispensary business model, and now it appears that because of the pandemic, uh, pickup or delivery looks like the largest component of growth going forward in the cannabis space. Uh, the reluctance of people to want to go out and go shopping, uh, the knowledge level increasing, the number of doctors who uh, who um, who are involved in the practice of rec- making recommendations, and, and as you pointed out, more and more states, um, we're we're in a a really interesting time uh, in the cannabis space, and I'm curious what you think about what I just said.
3: Well, so 18 months ago, um, I don't think I would have been as as um, hopeful as I am today. Um, as a result of COVID, um, not only do we see the changes more from kind of a storefront to a drive-through or pickup model, but I think we've also increased the chances of states legalizing cannabis, either for medicinal or recreational use, because so many states are in an economic slump, and they see other states that have legalized cannabis, and they see how much money is being generated in terms of tax revenues and the benefit is it's not like some other technology or or widget or gadget we're introducing for the first time the demand exists immediately everywhere it's simply uh, occurring on the illicit market so when you look at states like New Jersey that just recently legalized to legalized cannabis for for recreational use New Jersey is situated close to Connecticut New York Pennsylvania Maryland And when I was doing research for my book, I realized that about 20% of a state's recreational cannabis consumption, the revenue comes from out of state. So you're going to have these governors and state officials from every state that borders New Jersey, and they're going to have their residents driving to New Jersey, spending their money there, and then driving back home. And I don't think uh, they're going to stand very long to, to lose that kind of tax revenue. So as a result of the last year, you know, 18 months ago, I wouldn't have seen... I wouldn't have been as positive, assuming that so many states would legalize. But I think in the next year, in 2021, 2022, I think we're going to see a lot more states legalize, and it doesn't necessarily need to come down to a vote, since they have ways of doing that within the state to decide to legalize it.
1: Yeah, you know, you bring up an interesting point. Um, we've got, and you might have a more accurate count than I have, but in my my brain tells me that with the outcome of the elections in November we have in in the neighborhood of 37 states that have have made either municipal uh, um, medicinal or and or recreational uh available so we don't really have that much left we got you know 12 13 states left to get to get on board and i don't know whether the 13 most hardest or not but but there is a certain amount of momentum when you 've got uh, two thirds or more of the states providing cannabis at least on a medical basis and medical and recreational uh, doesn't that put a lot of pressure on the politicians to change what 's going on in addition to as you pointed out the tax revenue
3: I, I think that's the the key driving factor more than more than compassion more than um, more than anything I think it comes down to dollars and cents and it's very encouraging when you look at um a place traditionally pretty conservative like the south and you have a state like mississippi that that voted for cannabis i think 70 percent of the voters voted to to have cannabis so you know if, if it can happen in mississippi i think it can happen anywhere in, in, in the states so um what uh,
1: so you said you don't expect any federal action over the next couple of years did i get that correct
3: I I don't think it's realistic to anticipate complete federal legalization
1: for at least
3: a couple of years or perhaps even longer. Correct. It's such a a massive undertaking and um, I think it's easier and more realistic and much faster to really make progress state by state and within each state. And I mean by that transitioning from um, medicinal to adult use cannabis. I, I think you, you made a, a really important point that I just want to go back and have you reemphasize.
1: And that is that we're 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 seeing the states uh, based on the votes of the electorate. The electorate is saying they want this. And that maybe the electorate may put the pressure, but it's what does it take, about two years to get through on a ballot initiative? So we're not going to see anything in, probably not going to see anything in 2021 or 2022 so is the next big window 2024?
3: So I have to confess ignorance that I don't understand exactly how uh, laws are passed or legislation is created. But uh, I think I think in 2021 and in 2022, if these states have the capacity and the interest to, to legalize cannabis without bringing it to the voters. I mean, we've had states, I think Illinois did it that way, Vermont did it that way. Um, I think you're going to see more and more states taking that avenue because it's, it's a very rapid path to helping to relieve the economic struggles a lot of these states are facing now, especially after COVID. Tell people how they can get in touch with you,
1: follow you. Tell them about your book.
3: Uh, sure. So uh, you can reach out to me through my website, douglascultivation.com. Uh, there you can sign up for my newsletter, uh, link to my social media sites, or also uh, purchase the book well thank you for joining us today thank you it's my pleasure so if you
1: didn't hear all this terrific interview with ryan douglas go to w420radionetwork.com go to the archive section and you can download the entire show and listen to it as your leisure we'll be right back Hello, this is Dan Perkins for America's Cannabis Conversation, and I want to tell you about a new sponsor, New Frontier Data, and their Equio amazing software to help you discover, engage, and compete in the cannabis marketplace. For the first time, you have the ability to discover on your computer desktop valuable information on state, city, and even zip codes to assess your opportunities for cannabis investment in that market. Through the Engage portion, you will be able to figure out what products in a marketplace consumers would be interested in buying. And finally, with Compete, you'll be able to look at prospect profiles and find new and innovative opportunities to test new products to attract new customers. Significant change is coming in the cannabis industry, and you need to get ready now and be prepared for this fantastic opportunity ahead of you. For more information on the EQO software for your business, go to newfrontierdata.com and look for the EQO section and expand your horizons. I'm Dan
0: Perkins. Time now for the lowdown on another high-time experience. Here's 420 Lifestyle Correspondent Rich Walkoff. Well, thankfully, California is reopening. The world is reopening. The pandemic is subsiding in most of the USA, and uh, travel is going to ramp up. And I guess when you think about California travel, it's from the beaches to the mountains, wine tasting, maybe you're whale whale watching or the like. But what about the cannabis industry? We're here today with Brian Applegarth, the founder of the International Cannabis Travel Association. And Brian, kind of counterintuitively, the cannabis travel world has been blowing up during the pandemic and maybe will continue to ascend even uh, in the aftermath.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, the future's bright. It's an exciting new travel segment. And, uh, you know, it really, I, I started in the space around 2015 and here we are in 2021. And um, it's going to be a very interesting year ahead for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, there's the maturity of the concept of cannabis travel, tourism and how that's going to integrate into really the travel industry at large. Everything from airports to rental car companies to hotels to comprehensive strategy for tourist destinations. How are we going to posi- uh, position this? Um, not to mention can- cannabis and hemp and CBD are inherently a tool for wellness and well-being, which is, um, as a standalone category of wellness, Is the data shows that's going to be You know, a segment that continues to grow, which cannabis and hemp are right kind of in in the core of that.
0: Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the Bud and Breakfast is the old, you know, uh, the old view of cannabis friendly hotel
4: destinations.
0: But it's it's transcended that we've gone beyond that, haven't we?
4: Yeah. Yeah. and I mean, cannabis and hemp is really inclusive, right? So you have everything from people that are looking to, uh, the kind of the can of curious that are looking to understand it more and how it can improve their quality of life. Uh, maybe even get them off some pharmaceuticals. There's a lot of kind of press around how they could potentially support in that way. And then you have people that may be used back in or, or consume cannabis more regularly back in college that are kind of reentering it now. And They don't necessarily want to smoke anymore because they have kids, but the beverages and the edibles are really speaking to them. You have, you know, chefs and cuisine really coming into play, which is a huge part of the travel kind of ecosystem, our restaurants. Um, So, yeah, yet again, there's just like so many ways. With Bud and Breakfast specifically, um, you know, you've seen an evolution of kind of first mover and people who are adopting and raising their hands saying cannabis friendly here. Um, And now we're kind of hitting a point where you see different types of, Models when it comes to cannabis integration in hotels and bed and breakfasts. Some are very cannabis forward where they're catering specifically to the culture and the cannabis consumer. Um, That is more of the connoisseur level, people that really appreciate kind of the cannabis lifestyle. Um, And then you have other ones that are offering as light a lift as kind of a CBD massage in their spa. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the cannabis attraction for their property. One thing that thankfully more and more hotels and resorts are starting to do today is at least adopt kind of basic um, strategy and operations for their hotel. Training their staff, um, having collateral concierge to educate visitors when they ask about it. Just being more prepared for mm-hmm. this travel segment that research has kind of identified.
0: Yeah, how about the demographics? Are, are you finding that for California, cannabis-friendly hotels and boutique places. Like we're here at Mine and Farm, a beautiful bed and breakfast in Guerneville, kind of the gateway to the Emerald Triangle. What a kind of people predominantly are more likely to attend or, or visit places like this?
4: Yeah, well like Mine and Farm where we're sitting now is a beautiful, I think it's nine to 13 room bed and breakfast that's tucked in the Russian River, right? So it's already a tourist destination. It has been for decades. Um, and what mine and farm have done is really integrated cannabis and hemp into their kind of offering to their guests, right? Where it's a very normalized experience. There's ashtrays available and outside, there's these beautifully stunning views where you can enjoy a pre-roll um, or drink a cannabis beverage in a kind of nature because private property, right? So um, they're really kind of adopting this and reaching this audience. The audience that we're seeing from this, as far as the mine and farm location, um, it's people from out of state, but also people coming up from the Bay area, especially in the wake of COVID, you know, people looking to get out of the urban centers, um, get up in nature where there's a bit more space. Um, and nature is actually one of those kind of, uh, self descriptors or self identifiers that the cannabis motivated travel audience stated was, you know, they really love can They love nature experiences with cannabis. They also self identify as wine enthusiasts and foodies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's going to be exciting to watch. And, and places like Mine and Farm um, are going to continue to evolve.
0: Mm-hmm. Now Talk about the, uh, uh, the, the amalgamation, the, the food, the wine, the weed. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, they are all simpatico. But the law doesn't always allow for the consumption of cannabis with alcohol on the same premises. And explain a little bit about those distinctions.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So when you get into cannabis retail, licensed cannabis r- retail and licensed cannabis consumption for the public, you know, that's obviously part of the cannabis supply chain and there's regulation and licensing around all that. Um, if you are over 21, you're able to purchase and and possess as well as gift cannabis um, to other p- adults that are 21 and up. Um, when it comes down to kind of the trifecta you were talking about of food, wine and cannabis, um, a lot of it's in the orchestration. Now, if you're having a private kind of gathering uh, with friends, um, then there's, that's something that if it's in the per- personal privacy of your own home, you know, cannabis is legal to purchase and bring to your own home. And there's also cannabis-infused olive oil. So if you decide to kind of use cannabis in cuisine or cook a dish, then you're, 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 it's more than compliant to be able to do that. Now, when you're doing it publicly or people are purchasing a ticket, Um, and you're promoting that consumption as part of that experience, that's where it gets on shaky ground and it's not compliant. Um, And again, this will evolve. I think in the alcohol industry we have, I don't know, I want to say upwards of 100 plus different types of licenses. Cannabis is, I think, at 20-something at this point. So there's a lot more that are going to be coming. I know Desert Hot Springs and John Thatcher out there with Bubbling wells. Um, is looking at events as well and really innovating and continuing to push Desert Hot Springs forward as he has. Uh, Right now in motion out there in the desert and Desert Hot Springs, um, there's a program spinning up that's all about kind of a guest day pass and being able to legally vend to hotels of boutique hotels in that area. Um, And that's also a a market that's really been on the forefront of lounges and and shared consumption experiences Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Now you say as the founder of the International Cannabis Travel Association. What about the world view?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So with with that kind of global lens on, you know, you see destinations like Barcelona kind of really innovating the space in this quasi-legal private club atmosphere. Um, I think there's well over 100 now or more in Barcelona, which are these cannabis clubs. There's a couple guys that I know over there that, that have one of these and you know, it's interesting. It's that it's kind of, did you ever go to Utah when you had to get a membership to go in a bar to have a beer? No, I haven't, but I know how restrictive it is. Right, right. So I think of it as like, oh, it's like the Utah model for alcohol where you go and you buy a private membership to a club with annual dues and then you have access to this club, right? So there's these different models that people are adopting from kind of uh, the different, alcohol landscapes, and Barcelona is really leading as far as kind of Europe. Of course, Amsterdam is still there. There's a little bit of a shakeup or some um, some negotiation going on about, about how cannabis is going to exist going forward, but this has happened multiple times with Amsterdam, and I believe when they start looking at the revenue and economic impact and the visitor economy, they realize that cannabis is incredibly important for Amsterdam. I believe the statistics, if I recall correctly, it was... One in 10 visitors to Amsterdam visit a cannabis coffee shop, or no, excuse me, one in four visit a coffee shop while they're on vacation. And one out of 10 will actually directly cite that that is the reason why they came to the destination, which as as travel looks at rebound, you know, is, are, that's important to take into consideration. Sure.
0: I would think Portugal would be there too, but yeah. having legalized most recreational drugs and
4: the like. So cannabis would be front and center. Yeah, no, Portugal's right in that forefront. You know, there's innovation happening there. Um, Of course, Amsterdam, Barcelona. I mean, I just, a couple years ago, went to an event in Prague where it was like a meeting of all these different kind of cannabis leaders across Europe. And, uh, you know, the hemp industry is taking off out there there a bit quicker than it is here even, arguably, um, which I consider that cannabis-related travel as well, you know. Um, So that's everything from the way cannabis or hemp is folding in is um, really in a way of sustainability, as well as, again, health and wellness and well-being and mm-hmm. CBD massage and, and, uh, and CBD beverages derived from hemp and beyond.
0: What would you suggest to bed and breakfast owners, small hotel, boutique hotel owners in terms of becoming more cannabis friendly? What
4: are some of the, the, the guideposts and, and suggestions that you would offer? Um, you know, I would encourage even additional collateral or some kind of kind of content piece, where you can really teach people about the history of cannabis a little bit. You know, we live in a very unique window right now, where cannabis has been illegal in 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 the in in the world, um, specifically United States, but globally for less than a hundred years. And if you actually look at, you know, even the foundational building blocks of the United States and even kind of like the cradle of uh, of, of civilization you know, cannabis, cannabis has been there and we have co-evolved with this plant. And there's so many different cultures around the world that have adapted and used this plan in a really unique, um, unique way that shows how it can really balance mind, body, and spirit. It's a tool for wellness. And as travelers and visitors come and they're open to new experiences and they're outside of their comfort zone and they want to do something that they wouldn't do at home, a, a cannabis experience, there's many forms of that. That could be a dispensary one oh one experience where you're simply going there because you know that that dispensary is built for hospitality and they have partnered with hotels and they're ready to accept guests that just want to learn. Mm-hmm. And they might walk away with buying a CBD topical for the first time. Right. And they might use it that night and it might bring a smile to their face because it's the first time they've done it, right? Sure. So there's those kind of visitors. So get prepared. Look for partners. You know, have collateral. And I'd say even having a little bit of education or a coffee book that shows, you know, why cannabis is legal again and why it is medicine and putting it in the context for me. I really enjoy looking at timelines and understanding, you know, how short, how small this window is where cannabis has been kind of illegal.
0: Well, again, we're changing the paradigm and, and, you know, kind of shaking off the stigma of uh, so nefarious and notorious uh, uh, an herb that it has been perceived in so many ways. But you're a great advocate, Brian, super catching up with you. Brian Applegarth, the founder of the International Cannabis Travel Association here on the W420 Radio Network. We link your contact info there and if you want to hear it again. It's the W420RadioNetwork.com slash archives. I'm Rich Walcuff. Thanks for listening, and we'll be right back.
1: Hello, this is Dan Perkins, here's more important information about the Engage section of the amazing software for new frontier data called Equio. These are just examples of some of the things that Engage can do for you. You will be able to see and understand consumption preferences at the county, state, and even the zip code level. You'll want to follow product trends filtered by age and gender so you'll know exactly what to offer and how to market it. How about learning the market density of the location you might be considering to expanding your business? Use the visit index score to determine the trends that impact your outreach and messaging. Engage with your customers customer base to expand and repeat your value. You can learn more about product trends filtered by age and gender. This valuable information that helps you to know exactly what to offer and how to market it. Things are changing rapidly and you need the latest information from an independent source to keep yourself informed of the changing markets. For more information on the EQO software package, go to newfrontierdata.com, click on the EQO software and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Welcome back to The Conversation, and joining us again today is Dr. Tessa Koston, who is a professor at the University of Houston, and she was on our show before, and she introduced the concept of creating a vaccine in the classic sense of a vaccine, where a part of the drug is going to be used to create the vaccine, and uh, it may help people. Uh, who are addicted to opioids, so doctor, thanks for coming back.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: you're welcome so let's let's uh we've talked in the last show about the, the vaccine and how it was more like a classic vaccine as opposed to the the covid nineteen vaccine um, mm-hmm. as you as you getting ready over the next couple of years to put together your clinical trial, first phase clinical trial. Can you tell us one what kind of patient you're looking for and and as they say in in pharmacology when you've completed your trials what is the endpoint that you're looking for what do you be what do you hope to be able to give to the opioid addict uh with your vaccine so let's talk a little bit about first part and uh and then we'll get into uh uh what your expectation is going to be. So who is the candidate for your your vaccine?
5: Well, the first step is just to give the vaccine to, you know, just regular people uh, because we have to test to make sure that, that people make antibodies. Um, and if that's successful, then we would move into giving it to uh volunteers who um, use fentanyl and are um, committed to trying to quit using. And often it's done in an inpatient hospital for, you know, a few weeks, and then it can be done in an outpatient.
1: When you put together a clinical trial, do you, do you have to have a certain number of men, a certain number of women, a certain number of people of various yeah. age groups? Um, um, whites and minorities, uh, is, is that yes, pretty much yes. true?
5: Yes, that's um, what the National Institute of Health uh, requests that you do. Um, and, um, you know, this is probably not going to have, you know, kids, <laughs> um, so it's usually people over 18. Try to get men and women, try to get um, representation from different different ethnic groups, um, probably get some kind of age range, but, you know, probably not like elderly people, um, you know, a decent age range. So when
1: you look at this particular drug, uh, this fentanyl, which is the, the underlying drug, can we think in terms of, uh, looking at that, the, the, the drugs themselves, um, is there is is there a commonality if that's the right word I don't know whether it is or not but is there a commonality of a user in the case of fentanyl are they more likely to be economically poor or are they are they upscale or does it make any is it making any difference I guess is what I'm trying to say
5: it you no know, I I think you know addiction can just um, level the, the playing field um, <laughs> across socioeconomic um, status.
1: So even though the, the the fentanyl epidemic in the country is, seems to be concentrated in the poor and the minorities um the the opioid addiction it, it crosses all economic boundaries. Is that what you're saying?
5: Yes, and I think if you're um you know have more resources financially find treatment pay for treatment um it's not inexpensive. Um, so that may be one reason that um, you know you may you may appear that it's it's to the poor, but it's you know it cuts across all all groups.
1: So, is the person that you're looking for for your study somebody who is truly an addict and and greatly dependent upon the opioid to function each day, yeah. as opposed to the casual yeah. user?
5: Yeah, we usually are looking for people who who need a certain criteria to have a diagnosis of an opiate use disorder. And, you know, that requires someone who's been using quite a bit, usually experiences withdrawal symptoms if they're not using, has developed tolerance,
4: has um,
5: shown, you know, uh, dysfunction in their life. Um, uh, there's a whole set of criteria that people... So
1: as you've been studying this, this problem is it is it fairly balanced between males versus females, or is there a, a skew? Uh, and will you skew your research profiles to that uh, if there's a, a difference?
5: Um, yes, I'm actually very interested in the sex and gender differences because I think that their bodies respond differently to different things. And um, so it's not like we're we want to concentrate on one gender versus another and would like to try to recruit to to be able to say something about how it affects males versus females um females mm-hmm. have it typically have a a more robust immune system um which sometimes works against them because they are more prone to autoimmune diseases as well Um, So it would be good to be able to determine if you know they may have different um, sort of doses of the vaccine based on gender, um, which you know that's an important thing to to uncover.
1: So just as a side (laughs) quick side issue, when when I went in line to get my uh, my COVID nineteen vaccination, people a lot bigger than me and people a lot smaller than me, but we all seem to get the same dose. Uh, so physical yeah. makeup didn't seem to make a difference in the covid Would physical makeup be part of your criteria to in in getting profiles of people?
5: Well, it's not um really done body weight like a you know like a more typical drug is usually mm-hmm. based on body weight um because it's just something that has to get in and and it's your immune system that actually does the work um mm-hmm. that you know starts to create the the antibodies so that's not um you know, this doesn't differ, say, by body weight or, or, you know, height or something like that. Three years or
3: so,
1: we start our first clinical trial. And, and we, before you start the trial, one of the things the FDA asks you, so I understand it, what is your primary endpoints? What are you looking to achieve?
5: We're looking to achieve that a uh, vaccinated person who is, um, uh takes fentanyl will not show any uh, behavioral or physiological signs of getting the fentanyl. And, you know, you can measure that with pain or breathing, um, ratings of, you know, if they feel high, et cetera. And I just, one little thing I like to add is one of the advantages of uh, a vaccine approach is that, you know, if a person is, say, in a car accident or has to have surgery, you know, like, um, like you said, with your wife with the hip surgery, they can be taking a different opiate for pain, and the fentanyl vaccine won't uh, block that effect. It's very specific for fentanyl.
1: Your desired outcome is that that the virus creates antibodies so that if a person relapses and starts using fentanyl again, the vaccine will prevent the drug from reaching the brain so that the previously experienced uh, experiences won't happen.
5: Yes, that's correct. The vaccine should have created the antibodies that would, um, you know, sequester the drug, the fentanyl in the bloodstream and keep it from entering the brain, which is where it has all those effects, behavioral and physiological effects.
1: So if we take the vaccine, the fact that we are not getting the, quote, highs that we're looking for, would that in, in effect be a catalyst for change to, to having the individual stop taking the opioids?
5: Exactly, yeah. So, you know, when they were used to getting the effects of the drug, the uh, four effects of the drug, they wouldn't get that. So it should help to extinguish that behavior. You know, it will also be done in uh, collaboration with psychotherapy. Yeah.
1: Now, now you mentioned we've just got a little bit of time left. You mentioned in our last discussion that you this if it works, it it could possibly be applicable to other drugs. Did I get that right?
5: Mm-hmm. Yes. And we've already done it with other drugs, at least on the preclinical side.
1: Okay. It's almost mind-boggling that that we're looking at the possibility of a vaccine uh, to deal with drug addiction. That would have tremendous implications in in the, the long-term treatment of people who are addicted to narcotics, wouldn't it, doctor?
5: Uh, yes, that would be my hope. I um, mean, in theory, it should work.
1: Well, I hope it does. And I thank you for joining us today. How can people follow your work?
5: Well, you can find me on the University of Houston website. Um, search for my name. I have a web page.
1: Okay, super. Dr. Tessa Kostler, who is a professor at the University of Houston and is trying to deal with opioid addiction with a vaccine. Thank you for joining us today, Doctor.
5: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: So if you missed any of this show, you should go to w420radionetwork.com go to the archive section and look for this interview because it's an important interview and we're going to follow the progress so we're going to want you to have you I want to have you back on again doctor thank you so much for joining us
4: today thank you for
1: taking part in America's Cannabis Conversation to hear this show in its entirety or to hear any of our archive shows log on to americascannabisconversation.com and tune in for the next installment of America's Cannabis Conversation